0: Welcome to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for this COP Talks podcast. I am Hamzal Haboubi, Altamimi's in-house ESG consultant. And today I am delighted to be joined with a former colleague that I have worked closely with to deliver ESG strategies and advice to clients in the region, Daniel Gribben. Daniel is the head of ESG risk advisory at Deloitte Middle East, and he is also an assurance expert with over 15 plus years of experience across multiple regions, including the areas of Australia, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East in a wide array of sectors from construction, food, transport to financial services. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Hamza. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure is ours as well. Now, in this episode of COP Talks titled Navigating COP28, Accelerating UAE's Net Zero 2050 Ambition with Consulting Excellence, we will delve into the significance of COP28 and how Deloitte is actively supporting its clients to achieve the UAE's ambitious net zero pledge. Some of the areas that we will be covering in this podcast will be around the ambitious climate strategies by governments at COP28, the component of global stocktake, and how this comprehensive assessment measures the progress against the goals of the Paris Agreement, and also insights on the role of digitalization and innovation in bridging the sustainability gap. Now, down to, to begin with, COP28 is just around the corner. I think it's around two months' time left. And it's an event that holds global importance in addressing climate change, in particular, given the fact that this event will be held in the UAE. Now, it'll be interesting to get your insights on what this means for one of the biggest hydrocarbon producing region and how could this ultimately impact the businesses?
1: Yeah, thanks, Hamza. And, and to reiterate, thank you for having me on again today to discuss uh, all things COP and, and climate change and, and the role consulting plays in this piece. To touch on the, the aspect there is, you know, the, the elephant in the room, as you say, is the hydrocarbon footprint of the Middle East. I think we have seen some, some backlash across various media outlets and across the developed world over the role and hosting this event in in this region. and you know there are two trains of thoughts around that. there is you know we need to clearly phase out fossil fuels over a period of time and you know as a result, these hydrocarbon heavy regions like the Middle East need to play their part and they you know need to be removing and reducing their footprints from a an oil and, and gas perspective and what they pull out of the ground there's also the other side of the coin, which is probably what I'm more in favour of, is that up until this point for, for 28 cops previously or 27 cops previously, those from the oil and gas industry haven't really had a seat at the table and haven't been able to discuss their plans, their ambitions and how they decarbonize at a government level. And we are in a unique position here in the Middle East where the oil companies, unlike the Western world, that where they are integrated oil companies and publicly listed and have shareholders that are, you know, can be available from all accesses of the world. Here we have state owned oil companies and state owned companies and, and they have a slightly different dynamic. And I, I personally think it's a <clears throat> a very good thing that they have a seat at the table this time round, because it, as you say, it's going to have a major impact. We need all sectors, all countries and all uh, entities to decarbonize in order to meet the paris agreement goals and to to get us towards a, a net zero economy moving forward for us in the middle east we have you know some of the, the bigger hydrocarbon companies which have started to look into their operations from an efficiency perspective they are trying to reduce the footprint through their value chains they are making pledges to net zero. And I think finally now we're starting to see what those commitments look like. Um, we've seen some of the, the UAE oil companies come out with their their net zero pathways and start to give some more tangible ways in which they're going to reduce their footprint over there. But I think most importantly, and you know, is, is that we're going to see change. And I think we've seen that also in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And for the changes that they have been bringing in, it's, It's not just small change that needs to be made. It's transformational change. And that has a big impact on this region. It has a big impact on these state-owned oil companies. And it's really what we're trying to do is create seismic shifts in the way that economies operate. And you can see that in Saudi Arabia, for example, which has the biggest company in the world, in, in Saudi Aramco, that they are trying to transform cities you know, these are not small initiatives around carbon emissions, but it's transforming the whole way that we operate as a society and as an economy. And and for that, you have to applaud them because we do need a seismic shift in how we produce energy, how we use energy, and how we operate as a society in order to meet the needs of the future and, and to accumulate a, a better carbon footprint going forward. And that, you know, to, to sort of, I suppose, close out a, a relatively long-winded answer, that has a big effect on customers, consumers, uh, entities within the supply chain because they also now need to look into what that that decarbonized or that shifting economy looks like and they need to start to change the way they operate there's no longer just going with a a cost down perspective but also an environmental perspective that they need to look into as a region that produces a lot of hydrocarbons of where do we produce and how do we work with the right partners to, to remove these? So it's going to affect the whole value chain. I think in the Middle East, we've started to see a lot of transformation with many companies like Mazda in the UAE and others who are, who are now producing large amounts of renewable energy. But there is, you know, to flip the coin, there is still a lot more I think we can do. Uh, and that needs to happen at speed so that we are able to meet these goals going forward.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Very interesting that. And now just going back to your point on transformational change, this brings me to a question on COP28 as a summit, which is quite unique in the essence of the particular flavor it brings to the table on the conclusion on the first global stock take to live up to the Paris Agreement commitment. Now, how do you foresee the measures considered as part of the assessment in terms of data collection for organizations or governments, the technical assessment leading to transformational change? And what do you think are the key findings disclosure at the COP summit?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Hamza. And I think maybe before I, I get into it, we need to go back to just to rehash what the Paris Agreement was and what this global stock take is trying to achieve. So, you know, the Paris, achievement, the Paris Agreement had, had sort of three long-term objectives and targets that were all signed up to, which is, you know, cutting greenhouse gas emissions to limit temperature rise to well below two degrees and ideally 1.5 degrees. We wanted to build resilience to the climate impacts that we were going to face, particularly in underdeveloped and and those impact more highly. And we wanted to align financial support and scale that uh, in in an appropriate manner. I think a lot of what's been focused on for the last seven years at these COPs has been really around the financial and the policy levers that have been driven at a government level. And so this stock take is a, a really important time for companies, countries, et cetera, to, to put their cards on the table and to show. So part of the stock take, of course, is to, to assess the progress of those three objectives and what these countries have done uh, to meet them. I think what we're going to see, of course, is that we are still a long way off the ball. We are still a long way off the target. And I think Dr. Al-Jabbar came out recently to say, you know, we need to acknowledge that we haven't done enough in the first seven years on the way to 2030 to meet the NDCs or the, the nationally determined commitments of these countries. So that goes then into, I think, various levels that will be discussed and have been discussed over the last two years leading to the, the outcomes of a stock take-in in November, which is how do we improve the data integrity? And a lot of that has come through the developed nation. So I think the, the developing world or the, the global north has, to a degree, have a, a very good handle on what its footprint is, what its baseline is, and then, of course, how they're going to angle towards net zero or in some cases may have already achieved it. And I know in some of the Nordic's cases are going beyond net zero to net positive. Um, but then how do we we build that data integrity, that knowledge, that wealth of experience and expertise in other countries? I think that's a big area for me. I think we're going to find that of the, the global countries that are at the UN COP, many of them have issues with data integrity and will be questioned by various NGOs and stakeholders with their feet to the fire over why they haven't met their commitments. I think what we're going to see is it is a opportunity to name and shame, unfortunately, which is how we apply pressure in the global government context is through that that name and shame process. We'll see some countries that haven't got anywhere near it. They will see some countries whose footprint might have increased exponentially. And really, applies the global blowtorch of pressure on entities to do more and to really change the way that they operate. So my takeaway from the stock take itself is that the stock take itself is not a game changer. It's a normal UN process that we go through to make sure how countries who have signed up to the Paris Agreement are, are meeting their goals. But what it does do is it starts to help apply that global pressure and that peer pressure for many countries to do more and I think what we will find as I sort of said earlier is that there is a long way to go for a lot of underdeveloped and still the developed world in sort of building that resilience building those pathways and financing the transition so that we can actually meet the the terms under the agreement by 2050 and the 50% reduction by 2030
0: yeah excellent excellent and and just going back to the the, the data integrity and and wealth management so we we both know here that there plays a heavy role on the consultancy firms to handhold and to support the entities to uplift their sustainability performance. Now, when it comes to your exposure, this is more of let's say, a, a personal question related to your day-to-day operations. Now, given the fact that you are the head of the ESG Risk Advisory at Deloitte, could you tell us more on what Deloitte's approach is to helping clients achieve their sustainability targets and to support clients in implementing their sustainability initiatives in particular in the context of the uae's net zero target and perhaps also if you could share any credentials or success stories of how deloitte has made a tangible impact on its clients sustainability journeys and helped contribute to the uae's net zero targets
1: yeah absolutely so i think that there's two parts to that question the first part is What do we as Deloitte do? I think one part of being a good corporate citizen is actually practicing what you preach. And particularly in the consulting world, in our region, in this fast-moving pace of sustainability and climate change, there is a lot of people out there who are happy to give advice, but not happy to to walk the talk themselves, so to speak. So at Deloitte, we have a very strong policy of making sure that we're adhering to the same advice we're giving our clients. So we have set net zero goals by 2030, which are supported by a science-based target endorsed goal which is really great, I think, for me and for the advice I'm able to give because we do walk the talk and it enables us to t- to uh, transparently show that we are reducing our own footprint. We are aligning with the UAE's vision, as you say, around net zero or, or other jurisdictions in which we work globally. It empowers our people and provides them with a real purpose to why they work for Deloitte and why they do give the advice they do. And it gives us a framework of which to operate. And one of the key things we've done is built into our contracting processes, what we call clause zero, which is around how we actually work with our clients to reduce their footprint and gives everyone a way to actually have that communicate through the procurement process over what net zero actually means, why, you know, particularly from a consulting world, why perhaps travel and other hybrid models need to be adopted and limiting that that footprint that we have as Deloitte. On to the second part of your question there, which is how we work with clients. So I think that frames a really nice conversation with the clients that we do partner with, is there is a lot of people who are on different parts of the journey in our region, in the UAE, in the Middle East. There are those who have never heard of this until perhaps it became the year of sustainability this year or until the net zero commitments were announced uh, back in Edinburgh in, in COP26 by the, the government. And there are those who are probably a lot more mature who have been measuring their footprint, who have been starting to reduce it over the past five years or so. Uh, And I think we need to acknowledge that that's really based on the way we operate in the Middle East. There is a regulatory mindset here that until things are regulated, we won't look into them or we will have a compliance mindset. I I strongly expect, and I think the market is starting to shift in that way where that is changing a little bit. There is twofold to that. There is going to be more regulation, we will see a lot more regulation announced over the next six months in the lead up and post-cop. We will also see a change of stakeholder expectations, which is making companies act. And we are starting to see people move and and talk with their feet in terms of how they actually buy products across their value chain. And so a lot of the work we've done is across that spectrum. A lot of it is with setting a clear strategy for these companies. Many companies at the moment, I suppose, are at the risk of greenwashing A lot of what they say because they have supported the government's ambition of a net zero economy and and meeting net zero by 2050 or 2060 depending on where you are but they haven't actually put the tangible targets in place behind it they haven't got the right data collection processes and most importantly they don't have the transparency and accuracy in their data so we work with clients across those sort of four main areas and a majority of our work is in that first two buckets where we're helping them to strategize, we're helping them to increase awareness within their companies, we're helping them to build that diversity of thought, and then we're helping them to start to measure. And the key part of that is clearly, if you can measure it, you can manage it. So starting to measure your greenhouse gas footprint, and we've done this primarily, I would say, in the energy and resource industry and with the financial sector, where they are starting to, of course, measure their impacts both in their own emissions and also that of their value chains or their their financing activities so that they can then start to make changes to bring that footprint down as much as possible uh, to meet the net zero requirements. The other side of our business at Deloitte that we work really strongly with is in the audit and assurance space. So helping with that data integrity piece, where once you have, of course, measured your footprint, once you've monitored it, you've got targets, making sure it has that third party stamp, which is really crucial. And we're seeing this in the the rest of the the global north and the developed worlds where you need to have that external assurance on your data to give it that integrity to the same level that you do for a finance disclosure annual report. So that's another strong side of, of Deloitte's business is helping them measure, monitor that data. And then you have, of course, the bits in the middle, which I would say the Middle East is not quite ready yet. So some of the big transformative projects are still in their early developments over how you transform your operations Through a net zero journey. But those two ends of the spectrum are are what we're seeing mostly with our work with clients and ensuring that, you know, we're able to have a bigger impact across the, the government's initiatives and who they work with.
0: Interesting. Interesting, Dan. And and on that end, there's also what we've seen right now an emerging shift towards digitalization by the entities, experienced by the entities for the cause of greater sustainability and greater sustainability achievement. And I guess as consultants, you and I have both seen this when providing advice to clients as part of the interventions, so that the key to unlocking a net zero future in industry is transforming the way the teams work through digitalization for the cause of higher efficiency and more ambitious sustainability objectives enabled by technologies that provide real-time data to optimize and better automate industrial processes and energy management. Dan, I mean, could you please tell us more on how can the industrial organizations seize the potential of digitalization for greater sustainability? So what is the true added value of digitalization in supporting entities achieve their net zero ambition?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll probably frame my answer slightly differently. I think digitalization, you know, effectively net zero on climate change is a An added added bonus of it. What we really should be looking at is efficiency and and cost reduction through digitization. And there has been a a big rise, particularly in the industrial sectors, that we need to digitize. We need to get real-time data so that we can make informed decisions. And it comes back to my, my previous comment there, if you can measure it, you can manage it. So we need to be able to get data. And whether that data is on energy efficiency of an industrial site or it is in other areas, around spills or other you know, sustainability and ESG topics. We need that data almost in real time now so that leaders can make informed decisions and can get a feedback loop to their strategy that actually works and, and creates meaningful change before we go down the wrong path. So from an industrialization perspective, you know the implementation of, of real-time monitoring of energy efficiency, which can also now be extended into emissions, The real-time monitoring of production data is something that is more bread and butter. But extending that into digital dashboards, into way accesses that key decision makers have is really key to to remove doubt and to increase data integrity. Uh, The digitization process, of course, removes a lot of human error in, in many cases, but it also needs to be configured properly. It is a the digitization problem is a opportunity is an opportunity and a risk. We need to make sure that digital solutions are configured in a manner that you know if it's garbage in, it's going to be garbage out. So we need to configure it in a manner that is measuring the right impacts and the right issues, and that can be primarily driven around your your core project and operating processes and then you can add on elements such as emissions at key point or fuel use in certain areas or energy efficiency across high energy using parts of the plant so that you get the right data in your system and once you have the right data in your system that it's being verified it's being accounted for and it's it's producing reports that are actually useful to users in an accurate and timely manner so that we get that real-time information these things are, are real key considerations and it's it's a big opportunity As we've sort of seen with the financial world, which took hundreds of years to revolutionise the way that we've done financial reporting and audit and the real-time data that we now get out to our shareholders, we have an opportunity in the sustainability space to get that and maybe leap forward a few decades and leap that into our decision-making processes now. That doesn't mean it won't come with risks and it doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. But there is a big opportunity to have informed decision now before it becomes too late, and particularly with the topic of climate change, before the impacts become very much so irreversible.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. And and yeah, I, I think that the financial sector also plays a, a heavy role and an equally important role to the digitization aspect here when it comes to financing entities, when it comes to providing that project finance for the sake of the net zero ambition and tapping into the financial sector, now that we've mentioned it, when it comes to financing the the transition, we know that the Middle East has that leverage and significant advantage in the power of its sovereign wealth funds, despite the fact that the wealth stems in large measures from hydrocarbon profits. Now, in line with the UAE's National Sustainable Finance Group's commitment to facilitating the UAE's economic transition and encouraging the adoption of sustainable finance at a national level, Dan, how would you envisage the sustainable finance taxonomy, the UAE's taxonomy? Would it be in line with the EU taxonomy, for instance? And how would you foresee the element of transition finance to fit in?
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think you've framed it really well there. The The Middle East has the opportunity through its historical hydrocarbon profits to to fund a lot of this transition and they are starting to take that on board. We've seen the announcement recently of I think $450 million a couple of days ago into Africa to fund some offsetting and some, some projects around energy efficiency, but there is plenty more that they can do to support that. Um, in terms of taxonomies, the reason taxonomies were created in Europe, of course, is to drive finance into green areas. We have a different model here in the Middle East, clearly, where a lot of it is state-owned rather than publicly owned. And so that driven economic activity needs to be thought of differently. One of the big drawbacks of the taxonomy we've found at Deloitte and through, through conversations with my colleagues in Europe is that it is almost too complex for these entities to understand. And so taking learnings from that and using it in a simplified manner to get a set of disclosures and a set of green indicators that are simpler and easily more digestible in the short term will be really, really crucial. The complexity side of it means that you also then, of course, have data integrity issues. You have other transparency issues. You have people who are just non-conforming and willing to be fined through the process. So that's a, a key consideration that the UAE needs to make in, in coming up with any taxonomy that they produce. We have been hearing sort of whispers and and mentions in the market that something of a measurement scale will be coming through various other mechanisms, whether it's through the sovereign wealth funds or through central banks or through others. But we do know that there is a, a large pool that is being mobilised. And what we nearly need to do from a Middle East perspective is improve our Our transparency and our trust that we have with other markets and that for me is the big part that a taxonomy would play in the middle east there is a stigma around the the hydrocarbon footprint that you've pointed out that needs to be overcome and the only way we're going to overcome that is through a robust disclosure mechanism such as a taxonomy or as a reporting scheme that centralizes and has a robust regulatory framework around the data integrity and the quality that comes out of it. And that'll be hopefully supported by an assurance mechanism or an independent review mechanism, spot audits and various other processes that need to go on and and sort of mechanisms like that that give it the credibility that it needs on a global stage. So that's really a key thing for me as we look into the sustainable finance question is how do we build that framework and and how do we simplify it in a way that allows it to be user-friendly and drive At the end of the day, which is what we want, we don't want it to be reporting for the sake of reporting. We want it to actually drive economic activity in the right green projects and the right areas and the right sectors that are going to support the transition to net zero. So that system needs to be, I would say, one, well thought out. It needs to be simple. It needs to have a transparency element, and it needs to have an audit and independence side to it as well. And whether you call it a taxonomy, whether you call it a transition framework for me it doesn't matter as long as it's achieving those objectives of improving transparency and driving activity into the right areas then i think it will be a, a really strong value proposition for the market because what we're seeing is the sovereign wealth funds want to invest in this they see the future horizon They and sovereign wealth funds by their nature are investing the the wealth of a country and so they have time horizons which are you know, extensively long. So they need to be able to invest in these for not just today, but for decades and decades and decades to come so that we have a future that, you know, they can get a return on that from. So they're my sort of main thoughts around that finance piece and it's going to play a key role. We've seen Dr. Al Jabbar come out at COP and say, you know, his his focus will very much be on the financing, but as well as the stock take uh, and, you know, the creation of things like the loss and damage fund and others that have come out of Shamal Sheikh in 27 will be really key priority areas in this in this COP, but also a key priority is just for governments in the Middle East at large in how they fund that and how they finance it and making sure that you know you don't get left behind as a as a country. Really well framed. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. And thank you again for joining us today and sharing
0: your valuable insights. And with that, we've come to the end of today's lightning episode on navigating COP28, accelerating UAE's Net Zero 2050 ambition with consulting excellence. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Thank you for listening to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi & Company.